Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is another interview special aired on February 25th, 2019. In case you missed the whole idea of interview specials, uh, this is our new episode format in which we offer you a bunch of pre-recorded conversations with some of the most interesting people of the European startup ecosystem. I am your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, and I am very excited about the conversations that we are going to listen to today. I hope you will like them, and here is just a few snippets to give you a taste of what's coming up. So we're going to talk about how to make a great product for a totally wrong audience and still survive. Uh, we're going to talk about why people want to have a home alarm system that's not actually a camera. We're also going to discuss how Slack is used in Europe and how important uh, the European region is for Slack as a company, and there's going to be much more. Now, first up is uh, a conversation with uh, Niels Mattisson, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Minute, a Swedish startup that has created the home alarm system called Point, uh, but totally missed the target audience at the beginning of it. So let's dive in. Hey, this is Robin Wartrich from Tech.eu, and I'm here in Brussels for the EIT Digital Challenge Award Ceremony. And one of the companies pitching today is Minute, a Swedish startup. I'm here with Nils, uh, the co-founder and CEO. Can you briefly uh, tell us what Minute is? Sure. Um, at Minute, we create Point, which is a, uh, a home alarm system. And uh, our idea is to replace uh, traditional directly attached sensors, such as door sensors, window sensors, motion sensors, etc., um, with one sensor that uses sound and other environmental data in combination with machine learning to identify those type, same type of events. So would you call it the home security appliance? Yeah, it's a, it's a complete home alarm that you can fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, you put it in the ceiling, connect it to Wi-Fi, and it's up and running in seconds. Great. So tell me more about the company. When was it founded? How big are you? Where are you based? Where do you have offices? Sort of the basics. Sure. That's a, that's a long story, but I'll, I'll compress it. Um, <laughs> it's a Swedish company for, for most intents and purposes. Like uh, We are uh, the majority of the team in Sweden. That said, like we actually started uh, with the co-founders in Shenzhen in China. We're part of the uh, Hacks Accelerator. But well, we set up operations in, in Sweden and uh, kept a bit of a presence in, in Shenzhen. We now have offices in London and Stockholm, Malmö, covering just over 20 people. We all know that it's challenging to do a hardware startup. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the journey from, from initial ID and concepts to the first prototype? Uh, how did that go? Uh, did that go according to your expectations? Or um, Yeah, tell us more. Yeah, no, I think expectations, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think we had lower expectations. When we started out, we had this idea that um, people who were renting out their homes on Airbnb, they had a higher monitoring needs perhaps than, than uh, you and me. But at the same time, they couldn't use the existing uh, home security appliances because they are, were very uh, invasive. So you couldn't set up a camera and invite the guest. So we developed the first version of Point with this uh, market in mind. And the idea was quite similar to what we're doing now. Uh, but I think our, our ambitions were uh, in terms of volume was maybe a little bit lower. But what happened was we put this up on, on Kickstarter and uh, it took on a life of its own. 
so we reached many times our goal. We had to switch out the factory. We had to do all sorts of things with the supply chain to be able to deliver thousands of, uh, of points instead of uh, a few hundred, which we had, which we had set it up for. And the striking thing to us uh, was that four out of five customers in the end, they weren't Airbnb hosts. So we had prepared, I think, the wrong product <laughs> to the right market or so. And when we, when we, when we started interviewing and started di- diving into this, we realized that there was a real need for a, a simple home security system that, that wasn't a camera, that didn't intrude on your privacy, right. that you could have in a one or two bedroom apartment. Uh, so we, in a way, went back to the, not the drawing board, but we saw, okay, well, we have this technology that is clearly applicable to this audience to the point where they're using it uh, in a way that it's not really designed for. Mm-hmm. So we took it back and we changed those things and, and actually designed to the people we had sold to rather than the ones we had intended to sell to. Um, and that's where we are at the market uh, today. Well, I guess so, some of these learnings uh, is, is also because... Um, you know, privacy in this day and age is, is a real hot topic. Um, so maybe that plays uh, into your cards. Uh, but I can also imagine it's uh, relatively easy to duplicate this kind of product. Uh, so do you, do you deal with competition a lot? Is that uh, a source of concern for you? So it's something we thought about very early on because we didn't want to build a company based on a product that would then be easily copied. So point the hardware, you can definitely with a few million dollars you can you can replicate it what's hard to do is the neural networks and the machine learning that does the identification and most of that is not living on the device so we do the feature extraction we do um, we have a compressed classifier but ultimately the learning is on the back end it's very defensible and it's actually pretty hard to do and it's also very defensible in that uh, we're building up a data set from all of the devices that are out there that you can't copy by taking one of them. Understood. Um, you've already also raised funding aside from Kickstarter. You've raised funding from a number of VCs. I'll let you uh, sort of explain who and, and how much. Sure. We've raised uh, two and a half million to date. Our lead investor is... Dollars or euros? Uh, dollars. Dollars. Might have some more news later on around that, but that's where we are today. And our lead investor is Karma VC uh, and uh, Nordic Makers, which are uh, two uh, fantastic funds to work with. Okay. And what's the next step in your uh, roadmap in terms of product? So now we're really uh, scaling. Uh, we started shipping the newest generation or the new generation of the product in June. We've been growing 30, 40% monthly since then. And uh, the next step is really to take the distribution to the stage where everyone hears about it. So we see that we have a funnel that really converts people. So as soon as people, well, when people hear of it, we know that we can, we can convert them, but we need to get it in front of more people. So, right. so it's just a matter of getting uh, people in the door and then it will sort of sell itself in a way. Yeah, I think nothing really uh, sells itself. Um, I said in a way. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but you need to build out uh, uh, sales channels and distribution. So we're starting to work with... Uh, uh, some of the largest uh, telecoms companies in the world, for example, to bring that and to bundle it with those kind of services, making it an add-on to your home internet subscription. And in that way, like getting it in front of people who might not be uh, early adopters and who might more be your uh, traditional customer looking for home alarm systems rather than the uh, demographic that we can find through our website. Might even make sense to talk to utility companies for that matter. 
It does, it does. And uh, we uh, we are doing projects both with the largest uh, utility company in Germany and in the UK. So yeah, makes uh, sense. Okay. Um, so what is the actual model? How do you distribute? Is it direct to consumer? Can you buy it online? You get a chip, that's it. How do people pay? Is there a monthly fee? Uh, so what's the business model essentially? Sure. So we have um, two business models. Uh, one uh, is a, an upfront cost and then a, a freemium model. Uh, so if you go to our website at uh, minute.com, uh, you can purchase the product and you get 12 months of service uh, for free. You get all of the features even uh, if you uh, decide not to continue the service. But uh, there is a, an upsell for if you have multiple users. Um, and then we charge $5 a month after the first year. Fantastic. Um, so we're here at the DIT Digital Awards. So they haven't announced the winner yet. Are you hopeful? I'm not very hopeful. Some of the others were very, very good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The quality of the, of the pitches were really good. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and best of luck with uh, Minute. Thank you so much, Robin. Thanks a lot for this one, Robin and Nils. It's a fascinating story. I really liked it. I would love to have something like this at home too. I have to say there's not a camera and still monitors everything uh, related to the security, but I am afraid that my cat will just uh, trigger it 10 times per day. So probably going to use <clears throat> some more conventional solutions. Now, the next conversation I wanted to highlight today is uh, with uh, Julia Grace, uh, the Senior Director of Infrastructure Engineering at Slack in San Francisco. I talked to Julia at the Slush conference in December in Helsinki about her own entrepreneurial past, about the scaling issues in engineering teams. That was the topic of her talk. And also about the importance of the European region for Slack as a company and the product. So let's check this one out. Hello, this is Andre Degler from Tech.eu recording today at the Slush conference here in Helsinki. And I'm catching up today with Julia Grace from Slack. Is it your first time here? It is. Okay, so let's just then start with you introducing yourself and telling a bit more about what you're doing at Slack. Absolutely. So it's so awesome to meet you, Andre, and to be on this podcast. I run the infrastructure engineering team at Slack. I joined Slack a little over three years ago when engineering was under 100 people, and now engineering is over 400 people. The company was about 300 when I joined. Now we're at 1,200. So I've been able to see incredible, incredible growth. Um, in infrastructure alone, I've grown that organization from a handful of folks to now 100 people in three offices. So it's been a fantastic journey. The numbers you mentioned mean that most of the people who joined are not in engineering. There's a lot of growth throughout all the departments. For example, customer support and sales, those orgs have grown substantially. This is, as you said, your first time on Slush and you have been on stage today. So what did you talk about? I talked about scaling engineering organizations in hyper growth, but honestly, I tried to make the advice pretty applicable to scaling any organizations. So it was fantastic to take the pink stage and speak to hundreds of folks about this. So what sort of advice would you give to, say, startups, European startups in terms of growing engineering organization? Oh, my goodness. There's so many different things. Um, the first one, the first piece of advice that I would suggest is that when you're growing a team, especially when you're really rapidly scaling, one of the hardest things is getting people accustomed to change. There's a lot of really, really rapid change that goes on and that I've been I've had a front seat to witness at Slack. But change is often hard for people in the abstract. We all love change. But when it actually uh, when the rubber hits the road and let's say you have a different manager or 
we restructure the teams so you have different peers, that can be really hard. And so setting the context to know that, hey, this change is good. This means we're successful. You don't want to be at a stagnant place where things aren't changing. So really getting people comfortable and accustomed to change is the number one tip that I often share with, with folks going through that kind of growth. And what did you do before Slack? Yeah, it's a great, it's a really interesting story. So I started a company, a marketplace for electronics before I joined Slack. I was the CTO of that company and I raised venture capital funding and I ultimately sold the company. But a year before we sold, Slack came out of private beta so that regular people could sign up. So I signed up and we started using the product on my team. And this is way before I even thought about working at Slack. And um, what I really loved about Slack was you could build on the developer platform. So I had a distributed engineering team. We had people across the U.S. and Canada. So we would all use it for chat, but then I would hook it up into all the other software that we use, like GitHub, for example, for code repositories, um, Zendesk for our customer support tickets, and all sorts of different systems. And suddenly everything was in one place. So when I sold the company a year later, I looked at the home screen of my iPhone and I thought, what are the products and apps that I use the most? And Slack was right there. So I got to meet Cal Henderson, our CTO, and I and I told him how excited I was about Slack. And he said, why don't you come on in and interview? So I interviewed and the rest is history. Wow, that's really nice. And your previous product had nothing to do with... Uh... Um, I've always been really fascinated with collaboration and how humans interact and work together, in addition to engineering, because I'm honestly a nerd at heart. But previously, I was all in working in marketplaces, connecting people, building bespoke electronics to sellers. So again, building community, but all through software, but nothing in the collaboration space. So what is the main thing, do you think, that has changed for Slack over the time you've been there? So I would say... Um, The original users of Slack were often small and medium businesses. So like the startup I just described that I had that I was running before. And the biggest change that I've seen that's impacted my organization has been this incredible growth. And in not only we had talked about the company growing, but the users and the types of businesses using the product. So we've got um, Intuit, for example, Spotify, some of these really large customers using the product. That's been awesome to watch that growth and to rethink what are the systems that we need to build to support organizations that aren't just 100 people or 200 people, but over 100,000 people. Because you build fundamentally different software when you've got yeah. users of that size and when you've got really small ones. Can you give an example, like what has to change in this case? Oh my goodness. One of the coolest things that we've done recently, we think a lot about performance, for example. And performance was really fantastic when small and medium teams were using the product, but we really had to rethink How do we send and receive data when we've got really, really large organizations that are sending a lot of information? They're creating new channels. Bots are posting into channels. New users are being added. Users are coming online and going offline. That's a tremendous amount of data that we're sending across the wire. And so we really want to be smart about it because we want to build a product that's incredibly performant, So, meaning um, it loads really fast. When you send a message, it sends really fast. But we also want to be aware of things like how much memory we take up on your computer, how much compute resources. We don't want to build a huge memory hog. We want to build a lightweight, really fast application. So really refactoring the original infrastructure that was, again, designed for smaller amounts of data to be nimble and quick and also performant at really large scales and for companies even outside the U.S. I don't want to build a memory hog while I use Electron. 
Exactly. Exactly. Right. So uh, is there a new plan for a native app then? Not, not using Electron? Right now, we've really been pleased with Electron and we've been pleased with um, the affordances that it provides. Right. So right now, we're very focused on continuing to be involved in the Electron community um, because we do work very closely with, with the Electron core team. So continue to be involved in the community, continue to work with them, continue to build on the platform. And then at some point, if we decide to do something differently, like we'll take that course when it comes, but not currently. Right. So Europe, uh, you are here. Uh, what's your goal uh, of being here, actually? So one of the things I love about coming to conferences like this is meeting with users in Europe, meeting with users in different areas and talking to them about what's working and why they love Slack and what features that they that that they would like for us to build in the future and think about in the future. From an infrastructure perspective, we're thinking a lot about performance outside the United States. We want to build a system that works just as fast and just as well for people in the US as people in Dublin where we and London, where we have offices, as Tokyo and Melbourne, we have offices there as well. There's no substitute to hearing from users about what their what their perspectives are and how they're loving the product or things that are really frustrating with them. Right. So how has it been then? Have you oh, have, have you talked great. to users? Oh, absolutely. Um Whenever I say I work at Slack, often people will come out of the woodwork. Oftentimes, we're very, very lucky. They'll come with exciting stories of how they use the product. And then they'll also come with things that might be frustrating to them. And so I love hearing that because there's no substitute from hearing it from another person of their, pa their passion really comes through. And sometimes too, like if they weren't passionate, then they wouldn't care what features we built. And so it's wonderful to have such an engaged and almost like excited audience about what's even on the horizon, what we're going to do next. Uh, so for me, it kind of uh, looks like there is very little competition to Slack. What do, how do you feel it internally? So I think one of the great things about being in this market is that the market is huge. Like it's only the beginning. The way that people are working is fundamentally changing. Like millennials are entering the workforce. My nephew is in college and he uses Slack for all of his classes. And so he is almost going to college in this Slack native world. <laughs> so whether it's Slack or whether it's a, a competitor of ours, I deeply believe that collaboration products are inevitable. Like companies, if they don't use them now, they will use them in the future. Transparency is incredibly important, um, especially with the millennial workforce. And so we are very, very focused on building a product people love. And my organization is incredibly customer focused and obsessed with that experience. And so I don't pay that much attention to competitors, but it's a big space and inevitably there will be even more competitors. The Atlassian deal, how is that uh, going through and how is the, what do you have to do from the engineering uh, part? Most of the work to do to transition the teams from HipTag to Slack is happening in another part of the organization. And so I'm not too intimately familiar about um, the ins and outs of what that organization has built. Although I will say from an infrastructure perspective, it's mildly interesting. You know, when we do do these imports and exports, that is something that our, that my organization deals with a lot. So what we're really trying to do from my perspective is streamline that process to ensure there's minimal impact to any users coming over to Slack. And uh, speaking of the roadmap in general, so what, uh, what are you busy with these days? What's, what's the main thing? What's the focus? Oh, my goodness. So many things. So for my organization... People will always want Slack to be faster. 
And so we have a deep, deep emphasis on performance. Search is also, search infrastructure is part of my organization. And so we will always want search to be more relevant. We will always want to find even more documents. And so we're we're investing in machine learning and search a lot for part of what my organization does, because the more that we can learn about you, the better search results that you can find. And the longer that you use Slack, the richer the artifact and the data set that you create is. And that is data that you own. And so then you, we're able to help you find things that you may have posted before, messages that a coworker posted that you wanted to bring back. So that's a big, big emphasis for us right now. Do you also work in, like, in particular with uh, startups in Europe or in the U.S.? Do you have special programs? Do you have any, anything special for startups? I'm not familiar. I don't know. The thing that got me really hooked, as I mentioned on Slack, was the developer platform. And so there's something like 8.8 million apps that, on, that are built on top of Slack. Like It's incredibly impressive. And so there's hundreds of thousands of developers developing on the platform. And so I was an example of a small startup that was building on top of the platform, but for my own use case. But there's a lot of developers from the big players such as Salesforce and Concur, um, enterprise software companies, all the way down to startups. Donut is an example. It's a really fantastic integration where if you don't know people, let's say your Slack's really large, you don't know everyone in there, then you can use Donut and it will match people together and send them a message. And then it will follow up to say like, all right, Andre and Julia, do you all know each other? How about grab coffee? And then a week later, have you had coffee? And then it, it can maintain stats about how much, if your organization is commingling with each other using this app. And that's a, for an example of a small startup that's building on the platform that's doing really great things. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And uh, if, uh, if you think about uh, adoption and traction in general, so what, uh, what can you say about uh, that in Europe? So half the messages sent on Slack are sent outside the U.S. For Europe in particular, I think it was, I think one out of every three daily active users in Europe is a paying customer. So that's pretty substantial traction for the, the number of daily actives that are um, on paid teams in Europe. I have some additional Europe stats that I could send you that we could go into as well. Is this very different from uh, other regions? In Europe, we've seen something like in the past two years, so since 2016, we've seen the number of paid workspaces quadruple. So we're seeing a lot of very interesting traction in Europe. And that's part of the reason why I'm here is I want to learn more. And I'm excited to talk to all these teams about the types, uh, how they're using the product. Search is a really interesting example. And search in different languages mm -hmm. is one of the things where we're starting to do some more initial research on how do we make the search experience better for non-English speaking areas? And this is a perfect way to talk more to users about their search experiences coming out here. So how good is it now? I've never used a, I've never used Slack in a in a non English environment. It is good. We definitely want to make it better. And um, one of the beautiful things about search is it's it, there's so much more that we want to do. But how different languages handle the semantics, search is quite different. And so we definitely saw this when we were building the search experience for Japanese. And that was, we worked really closely with our partners in Japan and did a lot of user testing to make sure that the result set was fantastic, that it was behaving in a way that they thought it would behave and the results were relevant. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. 
And uh, also, Slack is kind of known for uh, uh, going shopping once in a while, uh, buying companies <laughs> by themselves. So, do you have any particular plans uh, of uh, uh, doing more shopping in Europe? Um, I can't comment. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's pretty much it, actually. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Uh, and thanks for uh, joining today. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Andre. It was really wonderful to meet you. Hey, hey, hey. I hope you liked uh, this uh, conversation uh, with Julia, because this is actually it for today's podcast. This is all the conversations I wanted to highlight for you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and this special format. Please let me know what you think about it. You can tweet at me, you can send me an email to andreatech.eu, or just if you see me, you can just uh, tell me in person. Don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast app, which now includes Spotify, of course. Uh, just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Tell a friend about this podcast. No, seriously, just tell someone about this podcast if you like it. And follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. If you like the podcast, also leave us a review on iTunes. This will help others uh, find it and will mean the world for us. If you don't like the podcast, though, also please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or let us know why it is so on email, on Twitter, or again in person. Thanks a lot for listening today. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'm going to talk to you in a couple of days in the next usual episode of our podcast. Take care.